On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the October 2016 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what is going to be another terrific conversation. So my first guest is Dr. Davidan Anantham from the Dep- – he is the deputy head of Singh Health Lung Center from Singapore. And he's going to be talking about the article that he is uh, one of the authors, a large group, the evaluation of pulmonary nodules, clinical practice consensus guidelines for Asia. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Hi, it's great to be on. Also joining us is Dr. Ching-Fei Chang. She's the assistant professor of medicine from the section of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. She's here to discuss her accompanying editorial the importance of being adaptable, developing guidelines for lung nodule evaluation in Asia. Cheng, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. All right, so so let's let's start. You know, for a lot of our listeners, um, there's I guess you know we always try to set a background, and and the first thought really is, you know, why do we need a set of guidelines for nodule evaluation in Asia? You know, what's quote wrong end quote with the ACCP guidelines? Shall I begin? Or well, let, Dave, let, Dave, let Dave jump in. Uh, Dave, fire away, Dave. What, you know, what, what, sure. what was the background for this? You know, and then, Ching, please add, add on. Absolutely. Yeah, I think why did we do this is a great place to start. Um, we, when we first met maybe about a year after the guidelines uh, were published, um, the group uh, felt you know, that there was a big problem with compliance to the guidelines. Um, and, and this was sort of universal regardless of which part of Asia we came from. Um, and maybe before we, we go on to that, it, it's good to just take, talk a little bit about Asia because, you know, when we talk about Asia, we're talking about a lot of countries. There's 48 countries. Uh, we're talking about 11 uh, time zones, uh, 4.5 billion people. So it's, it's a big area. It's not just a, a very localized area, but yet uh, we found that the, the problem of poor compliance was the same you know, it didn't matter where, which part of Asia it came from, whether it came from a, an academic center or a more a general hospital. The, 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 the compliance was uh, re- relatively limited, and um, we were trying to do something about this. Um, and when we talked to each other, one of the things that we realized was it wasn't necessarily an issue of physician education or resources, um, because uh, we have, you know, some data uh, from Korea, for example, where even when physicians were aware of guidelines, uh, the compliance was uh, less than 50%. Uh, and from China, we have, uh, you know, shocking evidence that um, a lot of patients who have resectable lung cancers do not have surgery, and this is largely, again, driven by physician uh, decisions rather than, you know, patient comorbidities or patient preferences. Um, so we thought that um, something was, need, was needed to be done to, local, to contextualize and localize the guidelines, and we actually took the lead from the, the guidelines itself, uh, which uh, you know, suggested that uh, before implementation they needed to be contextualized. So that's, that, that's the sort of starting point of uh, where, where we, we began this process. Right, and Ching-Fei, add to this, I mean, the, the ACCP guidelines, as you just said, Dave, suggest to say, look, take these as a framework and then, you know, regionalize them or localize them, to, uh, taking in, you know, resources, cultural norms, and, and you know, et cetera. Um, so, and, and your article, uh, your editorial also uh, expands on that. Yeah, well, first of all, I just wanted to point out to Dave that even though the ACCP guidelines were not 
well adapted or followed in Asia, we also have a significant problem in the United States with guideline adherence. So if you read the articles by Nicole Tanner and by Chris Latore, they went on and on about all these great statistics about how physicians are not actually either believing in the guidelines or knowing about the guidelines, so that the compliance rate was really low, even within the United States. So it may not just be the fact that it's an American guidelines, it's just guidelines in general. Um, the other thing I thought was very impressive about your article, though, is that for the ACCP to come together with this consensus guidelines, we're talking about people from the same country who speak the same language under one government and with similar resources all around coming together to make a guideline. But here what you've done is just phenomenal because you've gotten leaders from all these different Asian countries where the basic common language is English, and it's English as a second language at that, and in many countries, you know, the Asian people um, actually write and read English beautifully, but the communication skills in terms of speaking may not be as, as great. So it's amazing that you were able to communicate and come together and put together this guideline. But my question to you is about this, question, uh, this issue of the resources being relatively equal. Because when you look at the stakeholders on this piece of uh, paper, it looks like you have representatives from Korea, representatives from China, Taiwan, Hong Kong. Um, I think there was one representative from India, a representative from Singapore, which is yourself. And it just seems like these are not uh, all of the stakeholders who, who would be affected by the guidelines. What about the poorer countries? What about Vietnam or Cambodia or Thailand, you know, the Philippines or Malaysia? I don't see representation of these people in the guidelines, so I'm sort of wondering what would happen if they had been part of the discussion because their resources may be more limited. I think I think that, that that's a that's a great question. Um, we, we did actually have a, a, a member from Thailand uh, on on the guidelines, um, but but I but I, we we appreciate the, the 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 comment that you know that, that these guidelines may not be completely representative of all of all the people in Asia. Um, uh, you, I mean, you're, you're right in saying that not all not everybody has English as a first. Uh, language and some of the discussions were very interesting, but we have to credit uh, Prof. Chun Dubai from China because he was very inspirational in in driving this and putting this together. And uh, what what we hoped for, I mean, uh, granted that the guidelines uh, may not be completely representative, was that uh, we, we we hoped that this would be a starting point for further conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I mean, we did try to capture as much of Asia as we could. I think that if you if you look at the countries that are involved, mm-hmm. um, I think more than sixty or seventy percent of Asia is covered, and it covers everything from uh, South Asia to East Asia. So I think there is some representation uh, in, in the guidelines. Obviously, not perfect, and I think that is something that we are obviously evolving towards. Thanks. Okay, could, go ahead. Could you guys all expand, you know, especially for our listeners, because the the issue here is, um, you know, you're right, implementation uh, is always an issue, and as as you pointed out, Fei, it's it's an issue, you know, everywhere. It's not, uh, you know, there wasn't that there was poor adaptation in, in, in Asia. It really wasn't flying off the shelves, if you will, in the U.S. Right. Um, but let's go through, actually, um, some of the, the, the kind of broader issues, you know, the the, the 
the scenario here is the solitary pulmonary nodule. And right. the solitary pulmonary nodule is a vexing problem for everybody, and that's hence the idea behind these guidelines. But there's a, a lot of unique scenarios that, uh, that make the solitary pulmonary nodule an even bigger problem in the broader Asian population versus the U.S. population. And so, uh, Dave, I was wondering if you could expand on that, because that, I think, you know, that was one of the larger drivers, uh, it seemed to me, that pushed um, an Asian form of the guidelines forward. Uh, yes, I mean, it will be great to talk about what's uh, unique uh, about Asia. Um, I think the first issue is uh, lung cancer is a big problem here, and it looks like it's getting bigger and bigger. Um, lung cancer has uh, replaced liver cancer as the most common uh, cancer mortality in China. It's the most common cancer mortality in Asia. And I guess it's a bit depressing that the Global uh, Adult Tobacco Survey uh, says that China is now the biggest uh, consumer of tobacco with more than 300 million uh, smokers. So, And this smoking trend is seen right across Asia, and, and, and we're expecting the problem to be getting worse. So one, lung cancer is a big problem, and we're expecting it to get worse. Um, the second issue is um, how endemic pulmonary tuberculosis is in Asia, right? So compared to North America and Western Europe, where the incidence is probably in the range of about 10 per 100,000, in Asia, we're looking at rates of 5 to 20 times that, depending on which part of Asia we're talking about. So obviously, um, this has got implications for the need to make a confirmed diagnosis um, for both uh, treatment uh, reasons as well as for public health reasons. And also, it sort of limits the, the value of functional imaging like PET. Um, then the other uh, thing that's in the news is obviously uh, environmental pollution. So this is both outdoor pollution and indoor pollution related to biomass fuels. Um, and then there's, of course, the ethnic differences between Asians um, and uh, Caucasians, for example. Uh, in terms of who gets lung cancer and whether risk prediction models uh, that have been developed elsewhere apply in Asia. Uh, and then finally, I, I guess the last point that uh, is relevant is uh, the decision-making uh, process uh, that patients go through in Asia and the role of the family and um, how that impacts, um, you know, how we communicate risk, how we decide on what treatment options to put, for, put on the table for the patient. I, I hope that gives a sort of an overview of the main differences between um, uh, what we felt were important for the Asian population. Well, no, and I think Ching Fei can expand on this too because they do in, in their editorial that that it's driven by you know sort of a generally a, a a younger age prevalence and then frequently the presence of driver mutations for lung cancer. But I think equally important, as you point out, is that you know when you have a solitary pulmonary nodule, um, you know, and and clearly uh, there's always that concern about lung malignancy. But there's an equally high concern from a public health perspective and for the individual that this represents pulmonary tuberculosis. And so the need for some level of a, of a diagnostic inquiry is, I would argue maybe the threshold seems to be a little higher simply because we're not just worried about malignancy, we're truly worried about another major problem. Right, absolutely. I, I think that's the reason why I liked a couple of elements that I saw in the revision. First of all, the fact that they relied more heavily on uh, minimally invasive biopsies like CT guide biopsies and bronchoscopic biopsies 
to confirm the diagnosis, whether it be a malignant uh, cancer or whether it was a granulomatous infection. That was very important in Asia to do that, whereas in the U.S., a lot of times we would be deciding whether or not we could just, uh, you know, watch and monitor this lesion if it wasn't malignant, if it didn't have the features of malignancy. Uh, the second thing that I really liked was the move away from PET scanning. We've been drilling into the minds of all of our physicians in the U.S. We've been trying to tell them that PET scan is not useful for the characterization of a solitary pulmonary nodule. It's like a mantra that we've been trying to teach them, and here the Asians have it perfectly. They're just saying that with a positive PET scan, you can't tell if it's TB or it's malignancy, so you're just giving tons of radiation to your patient for no, no reason. But the, the risk calculator issue that Dave just brought out, I think is really important to point out. Because the ACCP um, has guidelines which depend on knowledge of the pretest probability of malignancy before you start implementing the guidelines. And usually what we're using is a nodule risk calculator that we've developed in the U.S. There are several versions of them. But these risk uh, calculators are dependent on features that may not be unique uh, or, or applicable to the Asian population, such as the fact that they rely heavily on a smoking history. Now, even though Dave is absolutely right that China has skyrocketed in terms of the number of smokers um, across the world, you have to realize that the majority of them are driven by men. So 50 to 60% of Asian men are smokers. But when you look at Asian women, the statistics are shocking. It's only 2 to 5% of Asian women who are uh, actual smokers, and yet they're getting tons of lung cancer as well. So for that subsegment of the population, the nodule risk calculators wouldn't work, the ones from the U.S., because it's relying on risk factors that are not the main risk factors in Asia. Um, it's not just air pollution. I mean, for the women, there's volatile cooking oils. Um, there's a possibility of indoor pollution with um, using a lot of incense in a closed room, maybe mosquito coils being used in a, in a closed room, and also the, the possibility of infection leading to cancer, such as the fact that there is a link between HPV infections and lung cancer as well as uh, tuberculosis. So in Asia, um, there's a lot of other risk factors that need to be entered and integrated into a, a nodule calculator, and I think that's another project that still needs to be worked on. Dave, would you be able to, you know, obviously the, our listeners um, should uh, download these guidelines and review them, um, and obviously it's, a, it's an extensive document, and as you pointed out, the hope is that this will be kind of a, an ongoing work in, in progress. Could you highlight uh, for our listeners, though, um, a couple of the uh, important uh, recommendations in the Asian guidelines, especially ones that you feel differ from the published ACCP guidelines? Okay, sure. Uh, that will be fine. Um, I, I'll, just, I'll just pick up from where uh, Ching left off uh, about the risk calculator. So I think that's, that's, the, that's the first part of uh, an evaluation of lung nodules where uh, physicians have to make some sort of judgment as to what the risk uh, in this patient is. Um, so, you know, we, we know that Asians have a younger median age of diagnosis, they have a higher prevalence of EGFR mutations, they are more responsive to TKIs, uh, they have a lower prevalence of KRAS mutations. Um, so um, what we said is that, you know, be very cautious in using uh, uh, risk calculators that have not been validated in an Asian context. And uh, there is some move currently to actually produce those risk calculators. 
Um, and in, in, in particular, in, in Asians, a younger age group, uh, female gender, and a positive family history seem to be important predictors of uh, possible malignancy. Um, the, the second issue is obviously uh, about being circumspect about using PET scans. Um, you know, they do have false, false positives, and uh, uh, especially with tuberculosis. Uh, we did emphasize uh, uh, getting a, a confirmed biopsy uh, or, or microbiological uh, diagnosis uh, before proceeding. Um, and then uh, we, we, we put it out as, you know, depending on the availability of equipment and expertise, whether that should be via a CT-guided biopsy or a bronchoscopic biopsy, uh, um, you know, we, we left that open. Um, then the next, I, I guess, uh, big uh, recommendation was uh, to elicit patient preferences uh, in the decision-making. Now, it is true that not all Asian patients want family members involved, but a lot of them do. Um, so I think that we should um, at least uh, uh, you know, get some idea from the patients as to what, what they wanted uh, and who they wanted to be involved in the decision-making. Um, a lot of Asian uh, patients that we see um, are, are not ready for or are not prepared to just have uh, data thrown at them and options uh, listed out. So um, physicians often have to actually give recommendations uh, and perhaps even rank those recommendations, uh, you know, in order of, you know, most recommended to least recommended options. Um, and then finally, I guess this is a little bit controversial, but we also uh, asked physicians to consider um, uh, surveillance of nodules which, are, which, are, uh, which undergo radiological surveillance for longer than uh, the two or three years that have been put out uh, by the ACCP guidelines. Um, we, we know that this is not necessarily evidence-driven, but um, there are some issues with uh, long volume doubling times. Uh, there are some issues about measurement errors and indistinct margins with CT surveillance. So we, we, we told physicians, you know, don't just necessarily stop uh, at the two or three years that has been recommended. Uh, have a discussion with the patients. Think about the, the risk profile. And if necessary, uh, some of the surveillance needs to be extended. And then right, so, I guess... Uh, oh, the sorry, last, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Keep going. Right. Sorry. Yeah, the, the, the last, uh, I guess, the major uh, recommendation that we made was uh, sort of to reinforce the role of the multidisciplinary team. Uh, I think we, uh, we're all for a team approach to man managing these, uh, these nodules uh, so that patients don't get unnecessary surgery or uh, unnecessary uh, scans. Um, but, but we did realize that you know, there, there may be resource limitations, so we did advocate uh, things like telemedicine and teleradiology and Internet-based technologies to try and uh, give patients and the physicians who do look after them who don't have access to these teams and, and the technology um, access uh, you know, to, to expert advice so that uh, they don't undergo unnecessary treatment. So I guess that would be that would cover the major highlights of, of, of these guidelines. That'd be the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> so, so um, Dave, I, I know uh, Ching's editorial talks about it some, and, I, and it's one of the things that struck me is as definitely um, being divergent. Uh, you know, from from the ACCP guidelines was was recommendation two point four, which was the option to continue to scan yearly despite stability of a solitary pulmonary nodule for two years. 
Um, and so I'd like, to, and I know Ching, they wrote uh, extensively about it in the editorial. Because uh, the other one struck me as, you know, ones that definitely, you know, as, as was well explained, there were you know, uh, regional and cultural reasons, et cetera. And I think, and, and as we've already talked about, you know, different prevalences of diseases. But the, the, the argument to extend a uh, surveillance period of a stable, solid pulmonary nodule past the two-year mark um, I'd, I'd like, uh, you know, Ching, if you want to go ahead and expand, like on your editorial, that when you guys comment about this, and and, and right. we can take it from there. And I, um, I can see it from both sides because what Dave said is absolutely correct. Is that in their experience, um, there have been anecdotal stories of nodules that have been observed for longer than the two-year mark of uh, where we usually say the the process is likely benign. And then cancer would develop years later. Now, there could be a reason for this. As uh, I mentioned before, um, mycobacterium tuberculosis is actually a risk factor for lung cancer. It's, it's been uh, dallied around with for years. We've been talking about whether scar carcinoma from TB actually causes lung cancer. But more recent data shows that it gives about a 10 to 11-fold higher risk of development of lung cancer later on if you've ever had active TB. So the question is whether or not the, the nodule that has been stable for over two years was actually a granuloma, but then the granuloma itself provoked the development of lung cancer later on. So that's why it looked like the nodule took longer than two years to develop into lung cancer. However, the reason why we talked about it and how we criticized it initially was because in the majority of situations, if you think that um, the explanation can be justified by saying it's a slower-growing form of adenocarcinoma, that it is um, an indolent cancer that's taking longer to develop, usually for adenocarcinoma in situ, we think of a ground glass nodule, not a solid nodule. So if it's solid, in our minds, at least in the U.S., it can't be AIS, so it shouldn't take that long to grow. Well, there's always also the debate is how clinically relevant, too, are some of these malignancies if they're that slow growing, mm-hmm. um, you know, depending on the comorbidities and the age of the patient as well. I think one thing, Dave, I was curious, because that, that recommendation felt, felt the, like the least um, data-driven and more uh, anecdotally driven. And I, and I think the, you know, the one problem with all guidelines is that they, they inevitably, if they're followed to the, to the law, there will be people, obviously, who will fall through the cracks, right? I mean, every, you know, there's a, no guideline is perfect, and, you know, everyone has their anecdotes that we've been, you know, shocked at what you know, ultimately was seen, et cetera. But um, I'm curious, as you know, you, you were present for the discussions. That, that had to be a, a relatively heated discussion, I bet, or at least opinionated discussion sending around that guideline. No, no, it, it was extremely uh, opinionated. Um, <laughs> uh, let, let me try and defend it as best okay. as I can. I, I think, sure. first of all, we, we, we framed it as, you know, that you know, further surveillance would depend on clinical judgment patient preference. So we're not, uh, we're not saying everybody... Good point, good point. Uh, mm-hmm. surveillance. Um, you know, clearly, you know, if, if, the, if the nodule is low attenuation or it's got smooth borders or polygonal and, and or if the patient has got life-limiting comorbidities, clearly, I mean, no, nobody's saying that all those nodules need to be followed up. But, um, and I, I think that uh, to say that there's absolutely no data in this area is also not entirely true. There's no good data in this area, yes. 
we have data from Thailand to show that you know a lot of the solid nodules were under 20 millimeters. Uh, ended up being TB. So, uh, again, we're not here just to look for the cancer component of this. Uh, and then in the ACCP guidelines itself, there was a Japanese study which showed that sub-centimeter nodules had a greater than 20% risk of malignancy in their population. So, there is this sense that, you know, even some of the solid nodules uh, may be malignant uh, and we don't, we don't uh, truly know uh, that uh, we can't truly be certain that these are low risk. So I, I think that, that it is this uh, data that seems to be continuously coming out of Asia which suggests that, you know, that uh, there is a, a not insignificant risk of malignancy as well that made us say that wait, just don't stop at two to three years, think about it, have a discussion with your patients. And then, you know, uh, once, once you've, you've done that, if you've made a considered decision, then you can move on, either to continue or not, or to stop. Mm. Okay. But on a related, that's a good uh, argument. <laughs> yeah. On a related note, I just wanted to ask Dave about the recommendation. If you have multiple pulmonary nodules, it's suggested in the guidelines that we biopsy all of them to make sure that we're not withholding uh, curative surgery for a patient who may have one nodule be malignant and then the other nodules be something else. Now, you know, if you had five or six nodules, does that mean, Dave, that you would recommend for an agent physician to order five different CT-guided biopsies of those nodules? Or would you be satisfied with maybe two biopsies or three biopsies, and then if they show the same thing, you'd call it a day? Oh. <laughs> Yeah, this, that, that, that's a very challenging one, and that's something that uh, we struggle with in our multi-D uh, discussions in mm-hmm. the Health Funk Center. Um, and uh, I, I think that what we tend to do is we tend to uh, recommend biopsies for the most significant nodules. So if, if, um, if they're going to be in the same lobe, um, then you know, we, we may not want to biopsy every single uh, one of them. Uh, whereas, you know, if you know, they're on the contralateral lung or a different lobe, then, uh, you know, the push is to uh, get those nodules biopsied. Or, or even if they're not biopsied, um, after, after treatment to continue to, to uh, do surveillance for those nodules. But I think that the, the, de- the general point that we were trying to make was not to write off the patient just because there are, there are, there are multiple nodules and, and call this malignant disease. I see. Excellent point. Wow. So we've been talking for a little while, and I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Dave and, and Chang, what, what else, um, you know, what else haven't we discussed or expanded upon? I mean, again, clearly, um, our, our listeners should go read both articles. They're, they're both excellent, and and you know, there's a lot more uh, beyond our substance of our talk. Uh, you know, I, we're not going to have Dave just read the guidelines to us. Sure. <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> What else? What else should we? Uh, what, what, what have I forgotten to ask you about, or what are, you know, what else should we be expanding upon? Okay, so I'd like to start first because there's a couple of other questions I have for Dave. You know, in addition to the fact that I pointed out the stakeholders of the uh, in the committee that was making these recommendations were seemed to be from the more affluent countries. Um, I also wanted to know why there weren't any other stakeholders beyond uh, pulmonologists and thoracic surgeons. How about, for example, your radiologist or the medical oncology people, radiation oncology people, any one of the subspecialists who may be affected by the implementation of such guidelines? And then what about having patient stakeholders as well or government agency stakeholders who may 
have a different idea of how this should be run because from a patient's perspective, for example, it may not be easy for them to go to a center of excellence in a big city all the time if they live in a rural setting and they don't have uh, the expertise and resources around them to manage lung nodules the way that you're discussing, or like a government agency representative who might say, wait a minute, how much is this going to cost? Is the government going to be behind this kind of implementation plan? Because definitely in a lot of Asian countries, it's social medicine, right? Socialist medicine where the government is paying a big chunk of money for most individuals and the copay is very little. Okay, well, uh, uh, thank you for that question. Um, I, I think that no one is going to argue that uh, uh, broader representation uh, will be better for our guidelines. I think uh, that, that, that's, uh, that that's a given. Um, I think that uh, we also need to be mindful that uh, in Asia, most of the guidelines uh, or most, of lung, most lung nodules are actually managed primarily by pulmonologists and thoracic surgeons. So uh, we, we sort of targeted the group who are, who are most likely to uh, be involved or be affected by the guidelines first. Um, the other issue of involving patients I think is a great idea, but if you think about it practically, uh, already it was a big group and still not representative of all of Asia. So practically to get patients from different countries uh, to... Uh, you know, to be involved in this, um, I'm not sure how how, how that, that that can be uh, be achieved. Uh, what I would personally like to see is I would personally like to see better data on patient preferences. You know, so that you know future revisions of this guideline will actually be driven by by data from different countries on how mm-hmm. people uh, think about uh, risk, uh, how how they think about uh, invasive procedures. Uh, and, and so on. So I think that would be a, a better move in, in, in terms of evolving our guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, involving uh, oncologists and radiologists, I mean, I think that, 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 that's a fair comment. Uh, again, my, my feeling is that uh, that would probably push for more resources to be driven because I think the more subspecialists you involve, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the more... Uh, I think the the less they're likely to to uh, to take a, a not uh, a non-invasive or not for uh, follow-up approach. I see. Um, we 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 did think about uh, getting I mean about resources and, mm-hmm. and so on. And I think one of the things about these guidelines as well, we hope that these guidelines would sort of enable. Uh, physicians in Asia to go to the policymakers and say, "Look, um, you know, we need resources to do this. Um, you know, and 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 it makes a difference to patients. And you know, it's not just international guidelines we're talking about. It's guidelines which have been developed in Asia, and they're telling us that we need to do this. So, you know, we hope that you know these guidelines would help develop things like more multidisciplinary teams, better availability of technology." Uh, better use of of uh, telemedicine and you know internet resources to to make these resources available for Asia. So um, we were mindful of that. Um, uh, I think we were, we were a bit apprehensive about involving policymakers. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, I agree with you 100%. All the clinicians. I thought I'd throw it out there because you know because the government is so involved in terms of um, the medical system in Asia, whereas the government is a little bit more hands-off, I think, in in the United States. But um, related to that, I had a question about whether or not your committee members discussed 
on how they planned on implementing these guidelines within the context of getting physician acceptance from you know, uh, the various countries. As I understand it, not every country in Asia actually has, a, let's say, a pulmonary critical care fellowship. Uh, for example, in China, I know that about five years ago, they didn't have such a subspecialty fellowship, and it was my colleague, Renly Chow, who went in there and launched the first pulmonary critical care fellowships in China. So if you have uh, physicians that are being trained by the apprenticeship model, where they're basically saying, I'm going to figure out if this is lung cancer based on how my teacher did it in his day, right? And he's not used to following guidelines. He's not used to being told how to do things. How is it that just creating a document as you have, no matter how wonderful it is, how are you going to ensure that these physicians are going to accept what you've done and then follow them? Um, uh, again, I think I think you're, you're asking for a lot. Well, we hope that uh, as, a, as a start, people will read them, uh, and we hope that they will feedback to us, uh, and I, we hope that they'll feel uh, passionate enough to tell us, look, there are bits in here which you know are not even applicable to us, or you've got uh-huh. to you know you've got to modify yeah, this or that. <laughs> and, and I think we we would welcome that kind of conversation because. That that would would say that you know people care about uh, about what, what has been written. Um, the other thing that uh, we hoped that we could achieve because we are involving physicians from or leaders from several different countries, we hope that these leaders would uh, would be drivers to to uh, to put the message out there uh, and uh, to uh, to help educate uh, fellow clinicians on. Um, uh, you know that, that that following guidelines actually uh, you know reduces the amount of resources that we need, reduces the risk of complications, and mm-hmm. uh, you know achieves better outcomes for patients. So I think that was the start. Um, beyond that, uh, we, I'll, I'll have to talk to uh, Prof Chen Subai about what, what, what uh, <laughs> she stands for to, to roll this out on a bigger Absolutely. scale. Absolutely, I know it's a tough yeah. question. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but it was it was kind of like if no, you no, went through all it's the trouble question. to make it. You know, if you made it, how are we going to make sure it works, or that's actually going to be used and not just sitting there on someone's desk? Um, but you had an excellent response, and, and I'm very, very impressed and flattered that you were able to take on all of my questions uh, with just poise and equanimity, and, and you're just a wonderful, wonderful debater. Well, I think, I think part of this also represents a good... No, I think this also represents a, uh, you know, it, it, like all guidelines, right? This is, a, this is a starting point. And I think, I think the high, things that have been highlighted already... Um, by uh, you know, by both of you, um, is that you know, like any guideline, it's going to evolve and it's going to change. And I think some of these questions and and points are going to get brought up, and and maybe that's the you know the next set of of these guidelines will be a further discussion on you know, like like you just asked, Cheng, how are we going to implement these? How are we going to you know uh, make sure that these get further adopted, etc. But I think. Um, it's, it's valid to, well, or put it a different way, you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> right. No, I completely agree. And, and um, like I told you earlier, Kyle, I am a big fan, a big supporter of these guidelines. I'm very impressed with what they've done. I just decided to play devil's advocate because I felt like the best way we could actually help promote these guidelines was just to point out the areas which may be controversial or might be a little bit flawed in terms of design so that we can help the Asian uh, Committee develop newer revised guidelines that would basically be much better than what we have right now. No, I agree, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, 
Hey, I want to thank, thank both you so of much you for your support. Time. I want to thank both of you so much for your time, and and just see if anybody's got any final closing remarks. Uh, the only one I would have to say is if Peter Mazzone does his magic, uh, maybe we won't have to fight over the guidelines anymore, right? If he finds <laughs> a biomarker for lung oh. cancer, then we're done. We don't have to be confused anymore. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, that would, that, be, that wonderful. would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, what do you think? Any other thoughts? Uh, no, I, I just hope that you know uh, that uh, that people in Asia read read these guidelines and you know they give us their feedback and you know we we want we want we want the feedback and we want to evolve the guidelines. Beautiful. Both of you, thanks so much. This is a great discussion, and, and to our listeners, uh, you know, please go download the articles and make sure you read them and read them very closely. Thanks, Kyle. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Have a great day. Thanks, thanks, Kyle. Thank you. All right, thanks, thanks Dave. Dave. Thanks, Shingfei. Thank Bye. you for the wonderful editorial. That's perfect. Thanks, guys.